electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Power Lunch, everybody. Hope you had a good weekend. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Mattis. And then coming up, three strikes and they're out. Auto workers striking at certain plants. Actors and writers still out. And now healthcare workers could be set to walk off the job in the next week at Kaiser Permanente. We'll get the latest on all of these battles. Plus, we talk about the possibilities and the possible problems of AI with tech innovator Steve Case. We'll get his take on Elon Musk possibly building a factory in Saudi Arabia. Kelly. Tyler, thanks. Let's first get a check on the markets, clinging on to some gains about two-tenths of a percent across the board today. Earlier, we were flirting between gains and losses, so there's still plenty of room to see how this shakes out into the close. Watching Clorox shares closely today, the company was hit by that cyber attack. It now says we'll have a material impact on its first quarter results, in part by pushing up IT costs. Shares are down three-quarters of one percent. They've sunk a little bit. Now we'll have more on that coming up. And Joby Aviation is rising after announcing they'll build a manufacturing facility in Ohio, expecting to build 500 electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft known as EVTOL or EV toll per year. Uh, still, this stock has been quite volatile, as you can see, almost a 6% pop to almost $7 a share. And Arm Holdings is lower, the big IPO from last week after Bernstein initiates on the stock with an underperform rating. Uh, you can see a 7% drop now to $56 a share, still above both the IPO and the open price tie. All right, Kelly, workers are striking back across nearly every industry, it seems. We've seen lots of picket signs over the past few weeks, the latest being the UAW, of course, putting the auto sector at some risk. Hollywood shut down, still showing uh, very few signs of ending, if any. And now even healthcare workers are calling for actions. But we start with the auto workers and the big three. And Phil LeBeau has the latest. Phil. Tyler, we're here in Toledo, Ohio, across from the Stellantis plant where they build the Jeep Wrangler and the Jeep Gladiator. We've got about 20 UAW members behind me picketing at this gate. And by the way, there's like 10 gates here. So you, you get about 20 to 30 at every gate and they rotate throughout the day. The impact here in terms of production, it is substantial. Now the Wrangler is one of the best selling or Jeep models that Stellantis has here in the United States. But also when you take a look at the impact for Ford and GM at their plants that are suffering a strike right now, GM, 3,650 vehicles, lost production. That's what would happen if there's a strike that goes through the rest of the week. Ford, 4,000, and then you hear have Stellantis at 6,600. By the way, speaking of General Motors, it may curtail production at its Fairfax, Kansas plant. That's where they build the Cadillac CT4, the Chevy Malibu. Why? Because stampings that are used in those vehicles come from the GM plant in Wentzville, Missouri. UAW's on strike there. So if you can't do stampings, you can't build in Fairfax, Kansas. Don't be surprised if we see announcement about the beginning of layoffs for as many as 2,000 workers, perhaps as soon as the next couple of days from General Motors. And then you've got Ford and Stellantis. They held more talks with the UAW today. That's about all I've been able to, to gather in terms of the talks. It was not deemed as measurable or different. I think this is an ongoing negotiation, guys, where 
We're going to hear about them talking on a pretty regular basis, but they're still very far apart in terms of coming to an agreement. Finally, take a look at the auto dealer stocks. The reason I bring this up, we're still seeing product flow to the dealers who have bought models. In particular, full-size pickup trucks and full-size SUVs. Those are the most profitable and popular models that are for sale. And as long as that production continues, the dealers will continue to have inventory of some of those most popular models. Guys, back to you. Phil, a quick question. At the point at which this, these uh, actions uh, resolve themselves, do you expect that they will resolve at different times at different manufacturers, or will it all sort of be at all at once within a matter of a day or two? My guess is a little bit of the first, where you have one negotiation that is wrapped up, and it may take a few more days for the other automakers to wrap up their negotiations. Um, remember, these are not completely identical contracts, but they're very similar, very, very similar. So once one gets locked in, whenever that happens, that's a pretty good indication that perhaps the next contract will locked in with another automaker. And there's always somebody who is last, usually by a few days, you know, doesn't usually drag out longer than that. Is the, is the UAW worried that, um the move to electric vehicles will reduce overall workforce headcounts uh, over the next decade, or do they see, or do they see the possibility that th that that switch is going to mean more rather than fewer jobs? Oh, they know it's fewer jobs. It takes fewer. Tyler it takes fewer people to build an electric vehicle. You don't have the engine and transmission manufacturing. Now, what they would like to see is the battery manufacturing facilities. Those are set up in this country under joint ventures, let's say between General Motors and a Korean battery company or Ford and a Korean battery company. Those joint ventures are not governed by this contract. The UAW would like them to be governed by this contract. So that's one of the sticking points that's mm -hmm. out there. Very interesting. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much, and you'll be following it for us, I know. Phil LeBeau. As that strike begins, the one in Hollywood goes on and on. Talks are set to resume this week, but they clearly miss the hope for Labor Day holiday. Tensions are palpable as some now try to cross the picket lines. Drew Barrymore facing backlash from unions and their supporters after initially announcing she would try to resume her show despite the strike to help avoid further job layoffs. Julia Borston has the latest for us, and Julia... It's got to be day 110, 15, something like that now. It's been a really long time. And right now we have Drew Barrymore folding to pressure as the writer's strike drags on. And the writer's strike is in its 139th day. The Screen Actors Guild strike is in its 66th day. Barrymore backtracking on her decision to return to the air today without her three union writers and with picketers outside her studio. This decision made after backlash on social media. The talk, as well as Bill Maher, also delaying their returns to TV, while other daytime shows, including The View, have resumed. Now, as picketing continues, the AMPTP, the Alliance of Studios, is meeting with the Writers Guild on Wednesday, this new sparking hope of resolution. The WGA just now sending its membership an email saying that they won't comment while they are negotiating, but, quote, know that our focus is getting a fair deal for writers as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Raymond James warning in a note today, quote, while we think studios and investors have braced for the impact on fall programming, a longer strike could be more noticeable from the viewer's standpoint and be a continued overhang on the stocks. Now, the strike just adds to the pressures on the AMPTP member companies that include a soft ad market, 
cord cutting and steep competition in the streaming market. In the meantime, the cost of the strike on Hollywood community is massive, estimated at more than $5 billion nationwide, according to the Milken Institute. Guys? I'm curious, Julia. Has has virtually all creative work stopped uh, on on movie television uh, projects, or are there people out there, directors, writers, um, creative people, who behind the scenes are are even now talking about and maybe w working on future projects, or is it really frozen in place? It's really frozen. I mean, these guilds are very serious about making sure that the Writers Guild does anyone who's a member of the Writers Guild is not working on a project that could be benefiting the studios that they're negotiating against. So there have been some talks of having um, sort of the, the, some of the independent studios do productions. There's, of course, production overseas. But when it comes to production, remember, you really can't shoot anything without actors. Things really have come to a screeching halt. So I think there are plenty of writers who may be working on the great American novel um, or be thinking about um, independent work that they'd like to be doing, but nothing that is under contract with an AMPTP, AMPTP studio can actually be moving forward right now. Um, there is a sense that as soon as this strike is over, production is really going to take off again. And there is a big backlog of things that were ready before the strike that as soon as production can start again, there's going to be a, a real backlog. And it's actually going to be probably hard to get production space and to hire, hire crews then. And I think people are hoping that that happens sooner rather than later. All right, Julia, thank you very much. Julia Borston covering... Uh, the Hollywood strikes for us. And now to the third leg of the labor pains in the U.S. right now, a deadline looming for one of the largest health plans in the United States. 60,000 workers at Kaiser Permanente on the West Coast voted to authorize a strike if a deal's not reached by September 30th. 98% of the votes were in favor of authorizing a strike. The biggest complaint is money. Workers saying wage increases have not kept pace with inflation. They also say understaffing has led to long wait times and neglect of patients. So, Kelly, as we look at all these labor disputes, we're seeing sort of unintended consequences of inflation. Prices soared quickly. Wages really didn't keep up. And that uh, was uh, the, the workers or the ones who were feeling the pinch. Even though wages have risen sure. uh, and, and more workers in more um, uh, enterprises are making more money, it didn't keep up. Uh, with inflation, and so they feel like they've lost place. It lagged big time in yep. the early months of it. So, yes, we've inflected since, and it looks like real wage gains have been better the last couple months, but it doesn't matter because, first of all, inflation isn't coming down in places like groceries and especially gasoline where people yeah. feel more of a sense of relief. And the labor market is still tight enough that it can support these kinds of actions. So they're going to go for it, especially they see, I think, really when you saw the big headlines about what, you know, the airline workers and some of the 40 percent and those kinds of things, it really galvanized others to step up and say, we're going to go for this as well. This might be our moment. All right. All right. Still to come, we are two days away from the Fed decision and hardly anyone expects them to hike rates again, except our next guest. He will explain his contrarian reasoning and what it would mean for stocks. And in today's Power Check, it's all about what people want and what they don't, because Apple's one of the biggest gainers on the S&P, up more than 2%, leading the Dow as analysts say early orders for the iPhone 15 seem strong. And on the negative side, Moderna, even as the Pfizer CFO casts doubts on how many people will get their booster shot this fall, 
Investors, you can see, sending that stock lower 8.5%. As we go to break, here's a quick glance at the 10-year yield ahead of that Fed meeting. Zooming higher this morning, but sliding as the session goes on. We touched about more than 435, as you can see right there. A 431 power lunch now. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody, to Power Lunch. The major averages off-session highs ahead of a key Fed decision on interest rates. That comes Wednesday. We'll be there for it. While the Fed is widely expected to hold rates steady, our next guest says he thinks we could see a surprise rate hike here on set. Greg Branch, managing partner at Veritas Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. Greg, welcome. Explain your, your argument here, because you're pretty much alone. I, I am As pretty you much know. alone. I've been pretty much alone for probably a few months now, Tyler. So, so the feeling is uh, not a new one. Um, I think that when we look at all the data, there are troubling signs about inflation. And, you know, for the last few months, I have been uh, hearkening that we haven't actually really seen much disinflation. So it hasn't been subdued. Really. It hasn't been subdued. Inflation. And we are still counting the wins that we scored last year and several months ago as inflation is continuing to go down, as we're continuing to experience disinflation. And that's just not the case. Uh, Core has been going up 30 to 40 basis points since October. We had two months of reprieve from that in June and July, but now we're back at 30 basis points. And when you look at the underlying metrics, only electricity, used cars, and airfares decline more than 70 basis points. And we have to wonder when the runway for that, with the strikes, with the fuel, with energy costs, when that, when that runway will run out as well. And so we're, we haven't been seeing much of disinflation to begin with. We were lapping these, uh, these, the base effect from last year, these huge numbers from June to July, that runway is gonna run out. Uh, we are seeing across the board in various industries, as you guys just covered, other costs, costs of capital for businesses. And so I think that with the PPI we just saw, with the uptick in inflation in the last couple of months, with still record low, jobless claims and still record low unemployment, that the Fed may very well be moved to do another 25 basis points. And do you expect that this meeting or in November or does it matter? Both. <laughs> On the one hand, uh, I, do, I do, you know, if I had to place odds, I would say this meeting. Now, remember, remember Tyler, my uh, terminal rate is uh, six and a quarter. Uh, this would get us close to there. It would get us close to there. I mean, we're probably close than most thought we would be to begin with. When, mm-hmm. I, when I made that forecast a year ago, uh, many called it alarm, alarmist or ludicrous or, and other choice adjectives. Uh, but, um, you know, we're, we're within reaching distance now of it. Uh, 
But to your other point, I'm not sure it really matters. At the end of the day, with a 525 basis point raise already, does another 25, does another 100 to my terminal rate target, is that what makes the difference? Or is it that we haven't felt the full impact of the 525 that they've already done? I mean, I could go way out there and say, what if maybe they should be cutting rates right now? Yeah, that's right. I could I could tell you a story mm-hmm. in which all of a sudden, you know, you get to Q4, maybe Q1 of next year. Mm-hmm. The economy starts weakening. Everything's falling apart. Right. People's heads are falling. No, but but and you look back and you say, you know, they're supposed to be a leading body. All the leading indicators are terrible and have been. The yield curve's been inverted. All the rest is and we're kind of we're just waiting for the full effect to come. Right. right. So if they if they were to go off of what they what what we what could happen in six months' time, it might tell you something very different than kind of what's happened for the past six months. I, I would say that you're making a non-consensus argument with that case as well, though, yeah. Kelly. When I when I'm on these shows frequently, I've had other guests say that we've reached a trough in earnings, and so I'm not sure that the consensus view is that the macro environment's going to be that difficult. I'm not. No, sure. it's not. I'm just saying, you yeah. know, that if you were sort of say hey, I think they should keep hiking. I mean, there is an argument to be made that actually policy is already too tight right now. Yeah, we could we could make that argument, certainly. Um, What I think, though, just based on the conversations that I hear you guys have and that I have, is that I'm actually probably uh, a little bit more dour on the consumer and the macro environment for businesses than most. And so I have a hard time reconciling that with uh, rate cuts, certainly for this year, which we talked about all at the beginning of, of this year, uh, and even into next. I doubt that we get rate cuts next year. So let's, let's leave the, 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 the theoretical, the, the sort <laughs> of the ethereal stuff on inflation <laughs> right? and the Fed, and let's bring it home. What's this going to mean for my money? What's it going to mean for my stock holdings? Right. So I, I think that we're going to revisit exactly what we saw last fall. I think that we'll revisit that 3,800 level. And, you know, for me, so that's... you see a sell-off coming. Absolutely. If we're not already in it. If we're not already in it. And, and it's really, this, this is based on the difference in my view and consensus's view. I don't see how we get from three straight quarters of negative earnings growth with a toughening environment, with cost of capital that's higher, with PPI indicating that supply costs are higher, with more challenges on the labor front, I don't see how we go from negative 4%, negative 5% earnings to a flat third quarter. I don't see how we go from that to a negative, uh, to a positive 8% fourth quarter or 245 in 2024. And so I'm at 225, and when I put a 17 or 18 times multiple on that, that gets me to 3,800. That's not consensus's view. Consensus's view is eight, you know, 8% in the fourth quarter and 20% next year. And I just don't see how we get there in this macro. Interesting. Greg, thank you very much. My pleasure. Appreciate, appreciate it. Greg Branch. Still to come, IPO TKO. Some of the most anticipated names set to go public, seeing their valuations cut down dramatically. But is a lower open price actually better for them in the long run? We will discuss in Tech Check next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. FedEx. 
the big tech IPO is back. First Arm, now Instacart, and also Clavio, another venture-backed company. But these listings are looking very different than a few years ago. Deirdre Bosa has more for us in today's Tech Check. Deirdre? Kelly, we're still early in this round of IPOs. There's only been ARM, but of course we are looking ahead to Instacart, which is you know a well-known household name, and Clavio, which is an enterprise software company that has been popular with investors a few years ago. But as you said, we're in a very different time. One, the market's more fragile. We don't know how they're going to go this week. And this time around, it's been characterized by down rounds. That is when a company raises money at a lower valuation than their last round. So as we know, Instacart was valued at nearly $40 billion just just a few years ago. It's going to go public around $10 billion. Clavio as well, it was valued at around, I think, $10 billion in its last pro- in its last funding round. It's going to go public around that slightly less. So it maybe tells us that bankers are being conservative this time around. There's also the issue of scarcity. Um, the floats in these IPOs are incredibly small relative to what we've seen over the last decades. And numbers from DealLogic, on average, companies have sold 16 to 29% of their shares in IPOs over the last decade. Um, Arm, Clavio, and Instacart, they're all floating less than 10% of outstanding shares. So that's very different. And that could lead to some volatility on those first trading days. Part of that too, Kelly, is they're looking for cornerstone investors. These are investors that agree or are given an allocation of shares at the IPO. Big names like we saw with Arm look for an Amazon or an NVIDIA. In the case of Instacart, it's looking to Norwegian's, Norway's sovereign wealth fund. And that provides a little support and hopes to drum up some more retail enthusiasm. So be interesting to see what happens, Kelly. But all yeah. of these factors, they're important for the sustainability of this window staying open. For sure. I think it's it's much better for the kind of public to get in on, on the downside uh, than, than on the upside. But what about employees, George? I mean, do we have any sense of whether they're still going to be well in the money at these levels? Um, are some of them, you know, frustrated that they're going to yeah. get maybe a $9 billion instead of a $50 billion valuation or whatever for their company? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the employees, especially the earlier ones, they'll, they'll be okay. And, you know, there's things they can do in the cap table and financial engineering to make sure that employees come out okay. They make some money from this, but it is complicated and it's not as much as if they were looking at a $39 billion valuation. But Kelly, you and I have talked a lot about how down rounds could be good for the retail investor, but a word of caution here as well. The last mm. time we saw sort of evaluation that let's call it flat. That was Uber a few years ago in 2019. It was disappointing because it had raised so much money as a private company and the IPO was sort of around that amount. It still didn't do well. So investors got to be careful. And there's some similarities between the two, right? They're both gig economy companies. They're both, we're seeing increasing competition at the point of their IPOs. Instacart is profitable. That's a key difference. But important to keep in mind that just because it's a down round IPO doesn't mean it's going to be a good investment. Great point. Deirdre, thank you. We appreciate it today, and we'll see how it goes this week. Deirdre Bosa reporting. All right. Oil prices holding above $90 a barrel. So how much longer until maybe we hit 100, Pip Stevens? The calls are growing more and more frequent as WTI and Brent continue to make new 10-month highs. Earlier today, when asked about if we might see triple-digit numbers, uh, Chevron's Mike Worth told Bloomberg that he said it sure seems like it. We got UBS this morning saying that they see Brent at $90 to $100 in the next few months. Part of that is thanks to interest from financial investors. Brent's, Brent's uh, future structure is now in steeper backwardation, meaning that six months out, prices are five are $5 cheaper. And for the first half of the year, that was $1 cheaper. And so there is interest to make money as those contracts roll. We also had cities Ed Morris saying that we could see prices above $100. He, of course, has been a noted bear. 
But he said that gains this year probably means weaker prices next year. And one area to continue to watch is heating oil futures, of course, a proxy for diesel. Those are down today, but still up 30 percent in the last two months. Diesel prices at the pump up 23 cents in the last month, while gasoline has stayed flat. And so and in the PPI report last week, we saw that diesel between July and August rose 41 percent. So that is really something to watch here going forward. Wow. That and is, airlines down steep, again today. Steep and high. warning that, yeah, that the higher jet fuel costs are eating into their profits. Definitely. But, but thanks. Thanks. Let's get over to Kate Rooney now for the CNBC News update. Kate. Hi, Kelly. The sheriff of Los Angeles County emotional today as he announced an arrest in the deadly ambush of one of his deputies this weekend. The sheriff says the 29-year-old who ambushed Deputy Ryan Clickenbrummer at an intersection this weekend was arrested this morning. He says tips from the community led to authorities arresting that suspect. In this case... Ryan's family will never see him again. Planned Parenthood resumed offering abortion services in Wisconsin today. They were halted for more than a year following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade because of an 1849 state law that providers feared could be enforced that banned that procedure. A judge ruled last month that the 144-year-old measure does not apply to medical abortions. A federal judge ordered Starbucks to face a lawsuit claiming some of its drinks don't live up to their names. Consumers complained some of the coffee giant's refreshers actually don't have the fruits that they're named after as a main ingredient. Starbucks tried to throw out the complaint, saying no reasonable people would be confused and that baristas could have dispelled any confusion. So talk to your local barista there, guys. Back to you. All right. Know what you're drinking. That's the, that's the lesson. Kate, thank you very much. Head on Power Lunch, we will speak to power player Steve Case about the state of tech amid growing regulation and the birth of AI. We will be right back. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. By now, we all know about the pros and cons of artificial intelligence, or maybe we think we do, but concerns about the lack of AI regulation triggering a first-of-its-kind closed-door summit with tech leaders on Capitol Hill last week. Here to weigh in on that and more, uh, and uh, all things tech, is power player Steve Case. He's chairman and CEO of Revolution and the co-founder of AOL. Welcome back to uh, CNBC uh, Steve, also uh, the author of Rise, The Rise of the Rest, uh, which is now out in paperback or is tomorrow. It comes out on Tuesday. Steve, welcome once Good again. Good to be with you, Tyler. We're going to get to AI and uh, the meeting last week on Capitol Hill. But, but one of the things that leaps out at me is that, that you see a direct connection between some of the divisiveness that we're experiencing in this country, the bitter, bitter sort of anger um, and, and how technology jobs and technology capital is distributed regionally across the country. Would you explain the connection between the two and why you see it so clearly? Yeah, for the last decade, about 75% of the venture capital backing these new companies with these disruptive ideas uh, have gone to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. So the other 47 states are fighting over the remaining 25%. And this venture capital is used to start these companies and create jobs in those communities. But most communities are not benefiting from new companies 
but sometimes are being hurt by the disruption uh, of, of some of these new ideas. So that's why we're trying to level the playing field and try to make sure everybody in anywhere in the country has an idea, has a shot at building a company, kind of a shot at the American dream. And you're also creating jobs and hope and opportunity in those cities. And oh, by the way, from an investor standpoint, which is obviously the interest of your audience, you can generate great returns by backing entrepreneurs in these, in these places. And that's what we're proving uh, to do with our, our Rise the Rest Venture Fund. But, but so how do you do that? How do you, I don't mean to say break up the, the concentration of, of wealth and, and, and maybe of ideas. How do you do that and, and rather more democratize capital and opportunity and, and the funding for entrepreneurship? Well, we've been working on this for a decade, including we've done bus tours about 50 different cities. We now have investments in 100 different cities. We've built a network where we now have co-investments with over 400 regional venture firms. So we've built it over time, really trying to establish this national network to support local entrepreneurs in these in these different uh, communities. And we're seeing great examples of these you know, popping up. Just uh, in Atlanta, for example, we backed a company called Hermius. It's doing a Mach 5 engines, getting a lot of uh, attention in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We backed a company called Acre Trader. It's got a lot of momentum around a platform to invest in farmland. Uh, in Raleigh, uh, in North Carolina, we backed a company called Prion, actually an AI company started by the founder that sold his technology to Amazon to create Alexa. He's focusing on AI for the uh, the enterprise. We're seeing these companies all over the country, and we're encouraging other venture capitalists who historically mm-hmm. have just focused on the coast to pay more attention. And the pandemic has been, in an odd way, helpful here. We've seen more of a dispersion of talent, people moving to different cities, and the beginning of a dispersion of capital. So we're making progress, but the reason I wrote the book, and it is great that the paperback's coming out tomorrow, is we wanted to tell the stories of these companies and these cities that are on the rise, and I do think hold the potential to, to help divide, you know, you know a divided country by creating more opportunity for more people in more places. And that was before, Steve, you knew the troubles that San Francisco was going to run into, although it seems like they've done uh, quite well, actually, in retaining both in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, all of that uh, kind of like the, the AI startup capital and, and, and all the rest. I don't know if, if you're seeing that kind of spread out throughout the country, but I was also going to ask, at a time when the IPO markets are not so friendly, does that affect the potential funding for revolutions, um, you know, kind of target companies for the next generation? Well, Revolution, we have a seed fund, a venture fund, and a, and a growth fund. So they each operate a little bit differently. But Rise Rest specifically, because we're investing in these different cities, they actually never really benefited from the market boom a couple of years ago when valuations got higher. It was harder for entrepreneurs in these cities to raise capital. But the converse is when things corrected, there was less of a correction in these Rise of the Rest cities. The other part of your question in terms of AI, I think it's worth noting that AI has been around for decades. It's integrated in products and services we use every day. Uh, some of the focus around chat GPT and generative AI has gotten a lot of attention. And, and the San Francisco area has definitely led there. But we're also seeing AI meet the real world. AI you know, kind of disrupt in, in big industries, healthcare and other industries like that. One company we backed in Chicago, Tempest, uses AI and genomics to diagnose you know, cancer and other diseases. So I think as you start seeing AI integrated in with, the, with these other technologies to and, and embedded in trying to disrupt some of these big industries, you'll see more and more of those AI-powered companies in the middle of the country in these rise of the rest cities. The entrepreneur Elon Musk, who is, who is prone to uh, provocative statements last week called uh, artificial intelligence a, quote, civilizational risk. Do you see it that way? And if you do or don't, uh, why? 
Well, I see AI you know, both ways. It's, it has great power to improve things in fundamental ways. I mentioned you know, how it can save lives in, in, in cancer. There's a lot of different things it can do that can be very, very positive for us and in, in, in the world. At the same time, there's no question there, there are risks, just as where there was the Internet. There are some benefits, but also some risks. The good news is even last week, as you mentioned, here in Washington, D.C., the, the number of key tech executives, including Elon Musk and, and many others, uh, met with the, the Senate leaders to start talking about this. I think we need much more of that dialogue between the policymakers and the innovators. It's not like the, the early days or the Wild West days where the innovators just could do things willy nilly. Uh, now we really need to have that discussion and make sure we strike the right balance, including, by the way, how do we strike the right balance in terms of competition? There's a risk with AI that the big, big companies get bigger, big tech gets even bigger, and it stifles some of the innovation that comes from young companies, from startups. So we're that's one of the issues we're focused on, making because sure that the, these AI platforms are open to allow competition, just as the phone networks were open four decades ago, allowed companies like AOL and many others to compete. Yeah, I, I see that, the idea that that the big companies have the money, the capital to, to get the data that powers AI. But I want to come back to that important modifier there. He called it a civilizational risk, a, a, a existential risk to mankind. Uh, I get that that technologies have positives and negatives, risks and, and potential benefits. Do you see it as a civilizational existential risk? Well, sometimes Elon is, tends to go for the bold statement, as, as the Walter Isaacson book uh, re reflects. Obviously, I have great respect for him as an innovator, but he tends to sometimes be a little, uh, uh, a little bit of hyperbole, particularly on his own platforms. Uh, I, I see the, the risk associated with AI. I saw the risk associated with the Internet. I saw the risk associated or heard about the risk associated with new technologies such as agriculture technologies 100 years ago that when a time when 90 percent of us worked on farms, now it's 2 percent because we use technology to grow more food at lower cost, which is a good thing for society, but did force us to retrain a lot of those farmers to work in factories. And similarly, we need to retrain people to work in the companies of the future, the industry of the future. But we need to also do it, which ties in with the rise of the rest of the book all across the country. This won't work for the country if it's only in places like Silicon Valley. It's got to be all across the country supporting innovators who are creating jobs in those communities. All right, Steve Case, uh, you know, putting in the, the, the call for democratization uh, of opportunity. Thank you so much. It's always good to have you with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Real estate, whether it's home building, maintenance, or outdated heating systems, the whole thing has a massive carbon footprint. After the break, we'll take a look at one company trying to reduce emissions from old-fashioned oil-based heating. Clean Start is next. Welcome back. Real estate is one of the worst environmental offenders when it comes to carbon emissions, even worse than cars. Older buildings fueled with oil-fueled boiler systems top the list of offenders. So what's the solution? Diana Olick joins us with her continuing series on climate startups. Hi, Diana. Hey, Kelly. And, you know, I grew up in a pre-war building, so I know what we're talking about here, those systems. Most of the time, the heat is just way too hot in one room, cold in another. So the race is now on to electrify these buildings. But that'll take a lot of time and money. So one startup is trying to reduce emissions from what's already there. 
The answer to old-fashioned, dirty, oil-based heating is electricity and heat pumps. Companies like Block Power, Gradient, and RunWise are working on that transformation, but a Brooklyn, New York startup called Kelvin is working to improve and decarbonize the existing old systems. They invented the COSY. The COSY uh, is used to get control over those old radiator systems. We're able to stop heat from being released unnecessarily into those hot rooms and get it more efficiently to the cold rooms, um, which increases the efficiency of the building and makes everyone more, more comfortable. The COSY is basically smart insulation around the radiator that improves steam distribution around the building. It can push the heat more efficiently to cold rooms and also store heat in the enclosure when the boiler's off so you can use it later. As a result, the boiler doesn't operate as much, burning less fuel, saving money and lowering carbon emissions. The Cozies are controlled by the user with a simple interface that lets them set the temperature, including scheduling, etc. And all those systems are connected to the cloud, to our databases, which help determine what the building is doing in response to the individual need of each room. Kelvin says it has 10,000 cozies installed today and expects to triple that by next year. Fast growth that is attractive to investors like 2150. This happened to be the most elegant solution we came across for those very hard to decarbonize old buildings. Uh, and yet a viable business that can scale with venture-type returns. In addition to project financing, Kelvin is backed by 2150, Third Sphere, and Avesta Fund. Total funding so far, $36 million. And the government's IRA funding has been huge for Kelvin. A tax credit is helping them offer lower-income buildings a subscription model at no cost. That's something they wouldn't be able to afford otherwise. They're also a big part of New York's Local Law 97, one of the prescriptive items in the law, actually, which requires owners of large buildings to reduce carbon emissions starting next year with the goal of a 40 percent reduction by 2030. So a lot of homeowners are familiar with if you, you have to do the, the scan for the, the old oil tank to see if you still have one of those around. Now, it seems like those are becoming pretty much obsolete. So for the apartment buildings, this is really kind of the next battleground, it seems like. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of companies that we've actually profiled here. One was called Block Power, which was electrifying buildings. But again, it's a huge task in a place in New York City where pre-war buildings are the norm. And so to get that oil transferred to electric is going to be a tough one. So this way, at least you're reducing emissions while you still have the oil there. And what's the financial impact of all this so, to, the, to the typical renter? Yeah, I don't have to tell you guys how much oil prices are going up. And so yeah. that, you know, plays into your utilities. But Kelvin says they can reduce the costs by 25 to 40 percent hmm. of oil just by having to heat less. Interesting. All right. Thanks, Diana. Good to, good to have you in the house. Great to be here. Will we see you Wednesday in Washington? Are you going Tuesday to be and Wednesday at Climate Week, New York City. I will oh, be here. Oh, you'll be That's here. We'll here. miss you. We'll be there. Week. Why else would I all be right. here? All right. Good. Good to be with you. All right, coming up, NVIDIA looking for some technical support as it loses some ground. We will discuss that name and others next. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Time for some tech. We call our geek squad for some technical support to take a look at some movers of the day and the year and see which ones offer opportunity. I am welcoming Jay Woods here, Freedom Capital Markets Chief Global Strategist. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for calling me a geek. I appreciate that. <laughs> First up is Carvana, and we've talked about this one before, but I mean, look at this. So now it's up a thousand percent this year. Analysts at Wedbush think it has more room to run. They just upgraded it to neutral from underperform. What do you see when you look at this? Yeah, story? so we did talk about this last August, and it was one of the things we mentioned was this little saucer bottom we see with the little 
cup. Now, when we talked about it last time, it was retracing this area here, the gap up, and it came back and it tested what? It tested its 50-day moving average. So what? let's see if we can erase that. So this is the new line in the sand to support. But the thing you got to watch is this level here of resistance. Okay, it got there once before, it failed, it pulled back. So this is constructive. Do you know roughly what price point we're talking uh, about? Roughly, right level? now it's $44. Got it, before, okay. Before when we were here, it was 36. So okay. it is moving, it's moving up rather quickly. Uh, this is in an area now around 52, where I don't like the setup right here because it's more of a coin flip. Will it come back, pull back to 44? If you're a believer in the stock, yeah, maybe this is the time to buy it on a dip. I'm someone that wants to have price confirmation, so I want to buy it on a breakout. And this is where technicians get a little bit of a bad rap. Well, it's at 52. If it goes to 58, it's up six points. You're missing it. Right. But I want to be sure from a risk-reward point of view, because if it does break out, and we have until next November wow. to watch. November 3rd is when their earnings are coming out. For that next catalyst, we did have a Wedbush upgrade, but let's see what that next catalyst could be. Uh, I would probably buy it on a pullback with the stop set around that 50-day moving average. Right. And then I would chase if it gaps above that uh, little area here. In Interesting. What a, what a strange and unexpected year it has been for Carvana, especially with yeah. all of the problems Crazy. we've seen. Let's move on to NVIDIA, uh, which has been giving back some ground down from the all-time highs in August. The stock's still up 200% this year. Uh, this one, I mean, it's it's the stock of the day, the moment, the year. What, what do you think happens here? Well, something's changed. All right. Uh, we want to see two things here. We had a nice gap here on an earnings. We had a nice gap here on a monster earnings report. And this candle, this is very important to watch. This was earnings day. It gapped up to 520 after hours. It opened at 502.10, traded at 502.61, I believe, was the top. And it reversed to close it on the low. As a technician, that price action is horrendous. Okay. All right. We had what we thought was another breakout to another level. It failed. So what has it done ever since? It came back, it retested its 50-day moving average, it also failed there. Hmm. So what I'm looking for, and uh, you know, I love NVIDIA over the long term, I think this is one of those stocks you buy, you put away. As Dan Ives says, it's early innings in the AI story. This doesn't get any better. But right now, if you're looking for a pullback, there's 98 days till Christmas. You may be able to get it on sale and put in someone's stocking a little lower. Would what you I'm, be watching for the 200 um, day as the next? Or? Uh, let's not go to the okay. 200 day. <laughs> yes, that would be a problem because then you're filling this gap here, uh, and that's at 375. What I'm looking for is a pullback to about 403. That was August 14th. Okay. That was its low. Um, and then maybe digest and go sideways in this area, and you have a nice neutral trend and then wait for the next earnings. And that's not until around Thanksgiving time. So I think it's on pause right now. It's mm -hmm. not the end of the story, but the sentiment did not follow price this time. The sentiment was great. Price, exactly. price led, and price always leads sentiment. Very interesting. All right, that brings us to KB Homes, the home builder. They're going to report later on Wednesday. Lennar last week had that earnings beat on the top and bottom line, but traded down after the results. What does KB look like All to right. you? All uh, right, this is a technician 101 Line in the sand. You have what we call a neckline, a shoulder, a head, and a shoulder. All right, so what happened? We had strong volume here on the left shoulder. This is good. Broke out. Stock's up 47% year-to-date, having a tremendous run. Are there headwinds? Yeah. Mortgage rates continue to be extremely high. Absolutely. Do we have precedence. We had Lennar last week. They had their earnings out. They beat. What did they do? They traded, traded lower, and they broke down to the 200-day moving average. Wow. So right now, with this setup, given how... You know, the stocks have acted in the sector, given the run and given the setup I see technically. I think this 47 and a half, 48 level, while it held so far today and Friday, it rallied from there. Um, 
despite earnings, it could break down and then, you know, head and shoulders top. You have an easy calculation. You take the neckline to the top of the head and then you add that seven points. You subtract it from the neckline. We're talking 40 and a half. All right. Uh, 200 day moving average around 42. So I think that's a safe assessment on a pullback and maybe a better entry point if you still believe in the long-term story. Fascinating. A couple of stocks here that have had a change, like you said, a change, a change, both NVIDIA and KB and maybe Lennar as well. Jay, thank you so much. We appreciate it today. We got, we got necklines. We got heads. We got shoulders. <laughs> we got saucer bottoms here in this, in this segment. They, we give it to you every day here, right here on Powerline. All right, coming up, giving a whole new meaning to the phrase data wipe, the latest on a major hack in Clorox in closing time next. All right, welcome back to uh, the stories you need to know. The latest company to be hacked is Clorox, and Eamon Javers joins us now from Washington with more. Hi, Eamon. Hey there, Tyler. The Clorox company is trying to clean up its IT systems today. The company announced it had been victim of a cyber attack back on August 14th, but today it's saying that the financial impact of that attack will likely be material to its quarterly results. Clorox says the attack damaged portions of its IT infrastructure, which caused widespread disruptions of its operations. That led to a lower rate of order processing and an elevated level of product outages. Clorox says it can't tell yet if the impact will be material to its annual performance as well. Now, the company now says it believes it has contained the attack and is transitioning to normal processing on the week of September 25th. It says it has resumed production at the vast majority of its manufacturing sites, but the company can't say exactly how long it's going to take to get everything back to normal. The company also didn't offer any insight into who the hackers are, whether they have demanded a ransom or whether the company has negotiated or paid any money uh, in exchange for access to its own systems. This disclosure now comes on the heels of last week's major hacks of MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment, conducted by a group that some researchers call Scattered Spider. Not clear if Scattered Spider is at play here in the Clorox attack as well. No indication on who carried this out, guys. So very quickly, 30 seconds left. This did not merely affect financial or HR. This affected production. Operations, yeah, their ability to actually put product on shelves. That's why they're saying it could be material to their quarterly results. But they say they do have everything up and running. I asked them for an update on the investigation. They said the investigation is ongoing. They brought in some outside consultants for it. Very interesting. Uh, Eamon, thank you very much for following that story on Clorox. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you for joining us on Power Lunch. Closing bell starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.